Father, I thank you for this beautiful day, and I thank you that we have the opportunity to continue to come together in community week after week, um, exploring your word together, struggling with some of the understanding and um, the meanings, and Lord, I just thank you um, that you have given us the opportunity to be able to do this together. Um, Lord, I just pray that you are with us this evening, that your spirit fills this space um, and prepares our hearts to um, dig into some interesting text and um, have some interesting discussion following um, our talk. And so, Lord, we just give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah. I um, have been drinking a lot of water. And um, my voice coach, not really, <laughs> just Joy, who actually is a speech coach, um, she told me that the enzymes in pineapple juice help your voice. So I've been drinking pineapple juice like a, a tropical resident. <laughs> we'll see. I'm like, who drinks pineapple juice? Me. <laughs> okay. So we are in Matthew chapter 3, and we will cover the entire chapter. Um, if you didn't get a chance, I um, left lots of, of the half sheets with questions on the back table outside the door. If you're in um, here, there are some on the back table behind the sound booth, too, if you want to grab them there. Um, and you'll notice, too, um, I forgot until right now to put... Um, the quest, a question sheet on the seats of where the discussion um, groups are. And so I'm going to make the assumption that at least one person in your discussion group will have one of the sheets of questions. All right. So I wanted to start out. Um, this morning we met um, to talk about the uh, chapter 3 of Matthew. And what was interesting, I shared this, what was interesting is that right now um, I am in my second week of my class and it's the parables of Jesus, and the timing is awesome. And so um, my professor is um, super, like, geeked out <laughs> about the parables of Jesus, and so he's super excited about it all, and he videotapes his lectures, and he also posts them on YouTube, and so they're somewhat entertaining, and his YouTube channel is called The Caffeinated Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> should create a picture for you. Crazy professor, caffeinated, drinking coffee, talking about the Bible. Anyway, one of the things that he pointed out um, in this class I think is really applicable for what we are doing um, in the Gospel of Matthew. He pointed out um, how important it is to really take each gospel um, and look at it for what that gospel is saying and what the author of that gospel is trying to communicate. A lot of times, um, in a lot of commentaries that we read for this week, well, for the book of Matthew, they'll go out into some of the other Gospels, and they'll pull things in and say, well, this is what it meant in Luke, and this is what it meant in Mark. Um, but I really tried to stay focused um, on the book of Matthew and not pull in references from other Gospels. And so hopefully um, you'll see the intentionality of that. Also... Um, it was interesting to me that he pointed out, and this seems kind of like I, I should have known that, um, but the fact that these Gospels are written by different people, how many people they're written by can be debated, 
Um, but each of them were written to a specific audience for a specific reason. And so that writer um, may have had an agenda in what they were trying to communicate. And so that writer's experience in that culture, um, that writer's experience with Jesus, um, they might be different than another writer. And so that comes out in how they communicate some of these stories that we see in multiple different Gospels. And so they might be a little bit different. And so choosing one or the other or choosing what, which one you like better um, may be a personal preference, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. The other thing that I want to point out is this whole perspective thing. Remember that these writers are writing to a specific group of people in the first century. And so it's kind of like when John and Eric and I prepare to preach on a Sunday. I bring my perspective, my femaleness, um, my experience in life to my reading of the Bible. And so, so does John and so does Eric. And so that's why you get different things from each of us. The other thing is that you, um, if you were here in August, John and I preached on the book of, or on Esther chapter four, a total of four times, the same chapter. He did two and I did two, and they were four different sermons. And so it just kind of gives you an idea of how perspective um, influences how we read something and even how Matthew was writing because it, we have to consider um, some of what he is experiencing and who he's writing to. Make sense? Okay. All right, so um, let's start out in Matthew chapter three. We're gonna read through um, verse six. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all, of, all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So in those days um, is the first three words, in those days. And Matthew doesn't really tell us an exact date or a time. You know, like when we say, oh, back in the day, I'm talking about, you know, I mean, we date ourselves, right? If I say back in the day uh, in elementary school, I'm like talking about the 70s. Um, but he's not necessarily doing that. So back in the day, um, he's just saying those days. And maybe he's indicating something about what was going on in those days, but not necessarily a specific time. And so we jump ahead um, in here. And it's interesting that we'll find out a little bit later that Jesus is um, now an adult. So last week, Jesus was a two-year-old toddler. And now this week, we're, we've jumped ahead about 30 years. And so Jesus is young 30s-ish, right? And so what happened in those 28 years? There's not a necessarily a 
real clear picture or explanation of what he was doing, doing during those 28 years. But um, in Luke chapter 2, this is my reference to another gospel, um, we do know that at the age of 12, um, there is something about Jesus. When he was 12, he went to a temple with his parents, and then when they were leaving, um, he stayed behind. And so they go, they head home, and he's still back there. And pretty soon, like a day into their hike home, they're like, wait a second, where'd that kid go? So they head back to the temple, and they find him there, and he's sitting amongst the teachers, and he's listening, and he's asking questions. And so they say, they, they kind of like scold him, like, why did you do this to us? We've been looking for you. And he said to them, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So there. And then there were crickets for 28 years. And so um, my experience as a middle school teacher and a middle school principal um, would suggest that it might be okay that we skip some years based on the fact that his adolescent brain was developing, and maybe it's good that we don't know what he was doing. I have often, I, sometimes I wonder, like, really, what kind of teenager was Jesus? It'd be so great if we knew, because then we could point our teenagers in that direction, you know? But it doesn't really tell us. I don't really think that he was that challenging. I don't think he would have been in my office, you know, because he shoved toilet paper down a toilet or anything like that. Because what we do find out in chapter 2 of Luke is that the people were amazed with him because of the questions that he was asking and the answers that he was given. He was actually part of the conversation that these teachers were having. And so he had to have been pretty mature, um, which makes sense. We hope he was. And so just to give some time reference, last week he was a toddler. This week he's like 32-ish. Um, so John the Baptist is introduced here, and we want to know who John the Baptist is. There's not a ton of information that Matthew gives us, but based on information from previous um, books, we do know that um, John the Baptist is not the same John the disciple. He's a different John. He's John the Baptist. And he's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, um, making John the Baptist Jesus's second cousin, right? Is that how that goes? Parents are cousins, then we're second cousins, right? Okay, sounds, I think, yep, they're cousins. So, they're really, so Jesus and um, John the Baptist are related. Um, John the Baptist was another one of those miraculous conceptions. Um, Zechariah and um, Elizabeth were old, and they had never had children. Elizabeth was barren. But um, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah and said, um, Elizabeth is going to bear a child. And um, Zechariah was doubtful, and then... It, different story, but he ended up being, like, made so he couldn't talk. <laughs> like, he was mute because of his disbelief, and so when he went back home, he couldn't explain what was that um, Elizabeth was going to be pregnant. And so, um, this 
indeed happened. John the Baptist was born, um, and he is close in age with Jesus, we believe. Um, Chapter 3 then goes on, and it tells us how John the Baptist was fulfilling his calling. He was he was conceived, he was brought to be, he was gifted to Zechariah and Elizabeth for a purpose. And the angel told them what that purpose would be. Um, and that he would be restoring, um, he, would be, he would be delivering a restoration message and drawing people back to their relationship with God. And so that's what Zechariah was told and that's what we're seeing in chapter 3. And so um, the first quote that we see in, chapter, in verse 3, where it says, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a reference to um, the book of Isaiah. And it's pointing out and it's reminding the audience of the prophecy depicting the full restoration and the blessing of God's people. And so, again, this is pointing to what, G- what John the Baptist was called or meant to do. And so if we go back to verse 2, he calls for repentance. And repentance is, not, is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is something very different. Repentance is like coming back into obedience. Um, it's a verb. It's an action. So if you think of me... I'm living and I'm walking this way, and repentance would be to literally, literally turn my back on the way I was going and, headed, and heading back this way. So John the Baptist was calling the Jews to repent, turn back to God, and that is what we see playing out in chapter 3. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming. And you need to be a part of this. Don't miss this. This repent is imperative. Imperative means like it has to happen. So sometimes we communicate. I feel like when we, okay, maybe not you guys, but when I parent, sometimes I communicate imperatives in the negative. Like, do not forget to call me and tell me when you're going to be home. Like, do not to forget to grab your gloves, don't take the last swallow of milk out of the fridge. So we, that's a negative type of imperative. And I think sometimes we focus on the negative. I, myself, try to think about communicating in the positive versus saying what we can't do or what you can't do or what somebody shouldn't do. A positive imperative would be like, you have to try this new flavor of ice cream. It is the best, like you have to, okay? People say that, right? Who has said that recently? Who had the best ice cream this summer? New flavor, best ice cream, no ice cream eaters. That's a shame. (laughs) Okay, so that's an imperative, like you have to do this. And we kind of, we make light of it. And then there's these urgent imperatives, like our tone is amped up or we're hollering, and we might be hollering to stop somebody from walking into the face of danger or something like that. Like we might yell at our kids, don't touch the stove, it's hot. 
And so that is an urgent imperative. Like right now, you need to stop because I want you to stop so you do not touch the hot stove. So that's an imperative. And this is what John the Baptist is doing. He is communicating imperatively, repent. The kingdom of heaven is upon us. It is coming. And so on an interesting note about this term, kingdom of heaven, in Matthew, he uses the term kingdom of heaven 32 times, and he uses the, the phrase kingdom of God five times. The other gospels use the kingdom of God more, um, and they really can be understood as being um, used interchangeably. But um, one of the commentators pointed out that Matthew may have been being sensitive to the culture of his audience because back then um, they may avoid using the word God out of reverence for him. And so then the, word, or the term kingdom of heaven um, might be more appropriate to be used. So perhaps that's why he is. And there's other theories about why he would have chosen. But again, this is an instance of Matthew having a specific you know, audience and a specific reason that he's using and choosing the words that he does. All right, and then verse 4, we get this visual, like, of this picture of John the Baptist, and what, is, what, do, what does he look like? And so it seems maybe unnecessary to put this in there, but Matthew is using it. So it says that he um, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, His food were locusts and wild honey. Somebody this morning pointed out, he's eating wild honey, just wild, and we're paying like 20 bucks for a tiny little pint of wild honey now. And so this gives us this image of who he is, and he's using it to point out and draw the comparison to Elijah, who was a prophet. And perhaps he wants to point out that John the Baptist is prophetic like Elijah, Elijah also lived a solitary life. He found his nourishment in the wilderness, and he too was very deliberate and imperative in his message, just like John the Baptist is. Um, We also talked about this morning about John the Baptist being dressed this way. He wasn't flashy. We talked about these flashy um, pastors and preachers that want to fit in, and they're, they're appealing to a certain audience. And so was John the Baptist being deliberate in what he, in his appearance that he didn't look haughty or um, trying to impress a certain group of people? And so is that part of, um, part of why this was communicated? Is Matthew communicating that John the Baptist was just a normal guy, but he had a really, really important um, point to make to everybody. Um, Okay, so ordinary guy with a really extraordinary important thing to share um, with his audience. And um, the other thing about our conversation this morning was, would you have followed John the Baptist? Like, here's this guy kind of looks, you know, unkept maybe, um, but he's got this really strong, important message, and maybe he's, you know, um, he's got woo. We talked about that. 
that winning others over. So somehow people are drawn to him, but he doesn't necessarily look like him. And so how do we react to people who don't look like us? How do we react to people who don't act like us or believe like us? Are we willing to listen to them? Because the question we were talking about this morning was, what was it about him that made people drawn to him? Because his ministry was very successful. He had people following him, and it, he has tons of people coming to be baptized. And so people are following him. What was it about him that was attracting those people? And so thinking about other people and our response to other people and ourselves. And those are some questions that you'll have the opportunity to discuss later. So let's also talk about the significance of these um, baptisms. Um, first, it's really important to have a piece of cultural context here. In the first century, um, the Jewish people washed themselves as a way of making themselves clean from a religious um, viewpoint or, or perspective. So washing was not uncommon, but they did this um, for themselves. And so this, this idea of water for washing and, cleanly, and being cleansed is not, a, is not abnormal. This baptism that John was doing, it was an expression of repentance, back to that other imperative message he was delivering. So baptism um, it was an expression of this imperative, turn, turn from your old ways. It was an expression of maybe a covenant renewal. Those who profess the desire to turn away from their old ways, turn back, turn their hearts back to um, God, these were people that were being baptized and recognizing the importance of baptism as a sign of what they have chosen to do. Like Christian baptism, though, these baptisms that he was doing were not salvific. Being baptized was not salvific, meaning it was going to um, seal your salvation in eternity. It was a show. It was, that's not the right word. It was a symbol. Um, it was an outward symbol of a choice to repent, just like our baptisms are an outward, public, um, symbol, profession of our faith in Jesus as our Savior. And so this is similar in that way, so not salvific. He was calling people to baptism, showing the um, choice of repentance. So Matthew continues um, in verses 7, and we're going to do 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore that does not bear fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his thrashing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the, sh but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." There's some strong language there and strong visuals as well. So Matthew is now moving to tell us what 
happened when this unexpected group of people show up at John the Baptist's baptisms that he's doing. Um, he was baptizing ordinary people, and the Pharisees and, and Sadducees show up. And Matthew doesn't tell us necessarily why they're there, but we may be able to draw some conclusion, conclusions based on how John responded to them. So who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees um, were members of a Jewish political and religious party, um, and they were known for their devotion to studying the scripture and the obedience to the laws. So they were, kind of, they were rule, they knew the, the laws, and they would share them and tell people and teach. And the Sadducees were also a Jewish political and religious party, and they were priestly elite, meaning those were the ones, those were the people that were in charge of the practices of worship in the temple. So one is teaching outside of the temple, and one is helping and facilitating the practices of worship inside of the temple. And so John the Baptist is greeting them in a less than welcoming manner. He's like, you brood of vipers. A brood, a bunch, and vipers? Really? Like, vipers aren't nice, right? So that he's lumping these people together. He's lumping these two groups together. Even though they're, dif they're different, he lumps them together um, and is used, and he's doing that to, to show their shrewdness and actually the danger that they pose to the others that are there with him in light of what John is, what John knows and what his mission is. And so John is saying, you know, repent, turn back, change your behavior, change your life and do these things. And these um, Pharisees and Sadducees aren't exactly sure why or what John the Baptist is doing and the effectiveness of this. And like, this doesn't actually make sense to them because this is not something that they have seen. And so they're there to check things out. Um, he goes on to address them this group of people with some fury in 8 and 9. Um, but first, before we look back at what he says to them, um, a question he asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who sent you here? Put another way, why are you here? Like, I don't understand why you're here. You have no business being here, really. Do you want to be baptized? Well, he's not really sure. And so he's kind of feeling, oh, I'm out, like, help me understand. I'm really surprised to see you here. And so he goes on to use this analogy of bearing fruit. Um, and we've heard this before, and he's using this analogy to push back on them, um, where if fruit is the proof of your repentance, um, if you truly have turned your life around, there should be some kind of change in behavior, like a change of heart should produce an outward change of some, of some type. A change in heart should show in our actions. And those changes would be considered like the fruit of your repentance. And so an example now, um, as a follower of Christ, um, we may, people may see a change in behavior when somebody chooses to follow Christ. And so that change in behavior may be considered the fruits of that action. And it's not meant to communicate this works righteousness. 
Like you have to do all the right things in order to go to heaven. That's not what this is about. This is communicating. This is saying, if you've made an inward heart um, commitment, then something we should be able to see that something is changing. Because if your heart has changed, it just makes sense that some of your life actions would change. And so that's what he's talking about, is those are the changes that we should see. And he goes on in challenging them, because many Jews believed that being a descendant of Abraham automatically um, will put them in Israel's covenant community and receive automatic grace and the blessing in God's kingdom. And so he's saying, don't assume that just because you are in the bloodline, the family tree of Abraham, that you are going to inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so even these descendants of Abraham, like Abraham, had to show their commitment. And, they had, and like Abraham, had to show his faith in God. And that would show in his actions as well. And so he's saying, just because you're related doesn't mean that you're an automatic in. It's kind of like um, this, you know, this can speak to those of the first century and it can speak to us now. Like affiliation with some Christian, you know, Christianity doesn't necessarily um, affirm our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Our destiny or our salvation. So where we live, being raised by um, a Christian family, attending a Christian school, membership of a certain um, Christian church, verbal claims um, to have repented and trusted uh, are, f- are futile without evidence of that change and a persistence of that belief. And so what he's saying is, look, this is action. Like, you have to be doing something. You have to be living this way. It's not just your affiliation or who you're related to that um, gets you in the grace of God and determines your salvation. And so that is the fruit illustration to begin with. But then this axe at the bottom of the tree is thrown in. And it's because if if an apple tree is not bearing fruit, you may not, and you are actually, you planted that tree for apples and it's not bearing fruit, you might cut that down. Unless you are opposed to cutting green things down, which I do know some people are, um, you may just plant another tree elsewhere. But if you are, this is your livelihood and you're growing fruit and you have a tree that's not bearing fruit, you're going to chop it down and you're going to put it in the fire, use it for kindling or whatever. And so that's the, um, that's the point that he's trying to make and connecting it to this certain coming judgment. If you're not producing fruit, it's going to be cut off and you're going to be put in the fire. So that's the visual. And then he goes on in chapter, or I mean verse 11, and he says, I'm baptizing, I'm baptizing for repentance. He keeps repeating this theme and this idea of repentance. But Jesus, he says, the one more powerful and important than me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The imaginary 
um, the imagery of the Holy Spirit and fire here um, can be representing purification um, as well as that indwelt spirit. Like we learn that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit um, is indwelling in us. And so that's the kind of the visual, that's the visual that's being represented here with this imagery. Some people um, see this verse also with the, um, with the spirit um, ascending. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, we did do that. I thought I was getting ahead of myself. So um, this is um, people seeing this as Jesus coming after, not like as in a timeline, Jesus coming after, following um, a leader like. So not in a timeline, because you think about following, coming after, you think about a timeline, or you can think of coming after like following somebody. And so many people think that this is an indication Jesus coming after that he is pointing out that Jesus was following John the Baptist and leading, this was leading up to Jesus' baptism by John. Um, another illustration used in here that includes Jesus is this illustration of a harvest explaining how Jesus um, is using his winnowing fork, um, which is like a pitchfork or shovel. I grew up in the city, so I w- I'm just super unfamiliar with this harvesting idea. And so I had to read up on it. And my understanding is that when you are harvesting like wheat and they're using a tool, a winnowing fork, a pitchfork or something, and lifting, throwing the wheat in the air, and the heavy wheat will drop and the, sh- and the chafe will kind of float. It's lighter, and so it'll just kind of fall away. Right? Yeah. Where's the farmers? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> So this imagery is of Jesus separating those that are right with God and those who are not. And then that, um, that chaff, which is kind of like the not, will be burned. Again, pointing to this idea of judgment. Okay, So now we get to the end and we're talking about Jesus' baptism in verses 13 through 17. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now for thus It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." So Jesus' baptism by John marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and that's the significance of this chapter. Jesus um, came 
to this crowd to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John objects to this, like, for real? Like, I know this, is, this should be the other way around. You are the one greater than me. And there's conversation about, um, did John know that that was Jesus? Um, and it's very ing. Um, we talked earlier, we talked this morning about um, remembering that when the two were in their mother's wombs, Mary and Elizabeth, and when um, Elizabeth got to Mary, John in her, in her belly leapt for joy. So like, was there something, you know, that was spiritual or something there that would indicate something? And so that was part of the conversation. But, so Jesus is there, and he wants to be baptized, and John the Baptist is like, nope, this is turned around. It shouldn't be me. It should be the other way around. But Jesus convinces him that it is the right thing to do. He's like, no, now is the right time. And this righteousness is the restored relationship with God, which both John the Baptist and Jesus preached of. So they both have the same message, and Jesus is saying, no, this is right. This is the time. We're going to do this. There's, un- um, there's uncertainty about what Jesus is actually saying in verse 15, but Jesus is denying um, John's resistance. Not really clear, but he's saying, let's do this. Stop, put, you know, like this, stiff arm. No more. We're doing this. Let's go. The word fulfill would suggest that he is acknowledging that by baptizing, being baptized, they are fulfilling a prophecy. So the word fulfillment would indicate that Jesus knows that this is part of the fulfillment of the prophecy and that this is something he has to do. In baptisms, in baptism of the others, they showed a commitment to God's way. And Jesus' baptism also marked his allegiance to God's way of righteousness and justice, marking the beginning of his ministry. And so like the others, making a commitment to God's way, Jesus is doing the same thing. And so that baptism was important to him or for him. Another piece of context concerning Matthew's audience is that in ancient Jewish, Jewish tradition, it was necessary for a monarch to be anointed before they could speak or act as a royal representative or a royal figure. And so it would make sense to them for Matthew to be telling them that Jesus' baptism could have been, would have been viewed as the anointing that needed to happen to somebody who, um, of royal position. He was baptized, um, then the anointing of God's own spirit, the, Ho- the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the dove, and then his ministry began. So the anointing happened, and then his ministry began. And the final, um, the final verse of chapter 3, um, Matthew's words, choice, or what he chose to point out here and share were important because he said, um, beloved, God said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So what does this mean? It's kind of putting in a cap, that like this, this is it, this is why. So it means that 
Beloved is a strong and deep affection. So God is saying, this is my beloved son. It's for real. And with him I am well pleased. And when God says that, it means that he has taken pleasure on his son and that he gives approval of Jesus to begin his ministry. And so with that, we enter into what Jesus' ministry looked like throughout the rest of the, the book of Matthew. But this sets us up. How did he get to the point from two-year-old toddler to now he's 30-ish, and now he's going out um, into his uh, ministry? He's, do, he's doing his thing. He's doing what he was called to do. And so this is what sets us up, even though we don't have the 28 years in there. This is what sets up, and this is why we know this is, this was part of the prophecy Matthew was saying, and this is right, and God is pleased, and he's sending Jesus off to start his ministry. Okay, you have four extra, four extra minutes for discussion time. Um, there's lots of good discussion questions in there. We'll come back at like about four minutes, too, um, to see if what kind of questions got drummed up. Otherwise, extra question sheets on the back table behind the sound booth and then on the back table outside. Um, I didn't set questions on chairs 